Thank you, Father. We thank you, Holy Spirit, that you are here with us this morning as we worship you in spirit and in truth. I pray, Lord, that you would guide every heart and mind to be open more and more to your word so that we would believe and understand and obey your truth. I ask you for wisdom and guidance to reveal your truth to you today in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So this morning, I'm going to continue on my series called Revealing Jesus through the Gospel of John. I'm working our way through uh, the Gospel of John one verse at a time, which is a bit different, but uh, really excited to be doing it. Um, every time I get into it and, and study the line or the verse, there's so much that keeps jumping out, and I'm so excited to be sharing it with you, and really God does something with it every single time. Um, and the whole purpose of this Gospel of John, and I've been talking about it all along, is that really those that choose to read it and those that read it is that they can see that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the Son of God. And that's his whole purpose in writing the Gospel, that those that read and believe would genuinely have a, a faith or have a revelation of Christ in their heart so that they can personally connect with him and experience that true life even in the face of all the darkness that we're going on, even in the face of all the brokenness, everything that's going on, we can still experience a true life in Christ to those that believe and then ultimately enter eternal life. Now, this part, I'm up to part six right now. And uh, whether you've been following other parts or not, I pray that the Lord encourages you through the word today. Um, so we already know from John chapter one in the first 18 verses, which I've been going on about, um, it's the testimony of John the Apostle himself. So I'll just provide a brief, sun, uh, brief, a brief summary of it. Um, John the Apostle, he gives a testimony in those first 18 verses. It's his own personal testimony of what he witnessed. And he pretty much sums it up in, first, in John 1, 14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed his glory, the glory as the one and only son from the father, full of grace and truth. So John the Apostle observed his glory. He saw the Lord moving. He saw the Lord perform these miracles. He saw the Lord himself. And that word, John said, that word dwelt among them, among them as people. Jesus Christ walked with them, the creator of all living and visible and invisible things, the one true source of light and life. Uh, then from verse 19, we have the, the testimony of the greatest Old Testament prophet, the greatest man that has ever lived uh, before Jesus, that Jesus said about him, the first preacher of Jesus Christ, John the Baptist, he affirms that Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God. And then from verse 38, which I mentioned last week um, in, in John chapter 1, we see the first five disciples that, that actually started following Jesus. We see Andrew, Peter, Philip, Nathaniel, and that unnamed disciple, which many believe is John the Apostle, because we know that he didn't like to name himself. See, these, these five people that were true believers of God, true believers of the Old Testament, of what the Old Testament said about Jesus, and they gave a first-hand testimony of Jesus Christ. After that meeting, they personally connected with him and they declared who he was, that he was the true king of Israel, the son of God. So the first chapter of John, the Gospel of John, is all about testimonies. It's all about setting up the testimonies of who Jesus is so that the reader can go, oh, oh, 
all these live testimonies that are going on so they can actually start to get a bit of a feeling, a bit of an understanding of who Jesus Christ is. So it's all about these testimonies of him. Now in chapter 2, we move from a verbal testimony and we move to a testimony by works. And Jesus, how he proves to be the Messiah by the works that he does. And through the Gospel of John, John will see that John will alternate through verbal testimony and works as well. And he'll keep this, through both of them, he'll demonstrate that Jesus Christ is actually the Son of God and God himself. Now in John's book, we see seven miracles, seven miracles only that, throughout the whole Gospel of John. Um, and each one of these miracles, they're signs. A lot of people call John the Apostle, John the Gospel of, of John, a book of signs. So these are signs that prove and point to Jesus. And uh, with the intention of why John does this, is the intention that people would start to believe. But I'm not talking about, yeah, I believe, yeah, I'm saved. No, genuine belief, a genuine belief true belief in their heart that Jesus is God, is the Son of God, so that we can be transformed by the inside out. And as we go along, I pray that God will start to reveal things, start to reveal Jesus more and more to you, so that you can connect with him. See, these seven miracles aren't the only miracles that Jesus did. In fact, in John 20, 30, uh, 31, we say that Jesus performed many other signs, apart from these seven, in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book. But these signs, the ones that is written in there, they are so that many believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have, have life in his name. Jesus did so many miracles. It was a daily experience for these guys. In another verse, Jesus, uh, John, he says that Jesus did so many miracles while he was alive for those three years that every book in the world would not even contain the miracles that Jesus did and all the details about it. Uh, but John, he uses only these seven examples of evidence to prove that Jesus is in fact God. And uh, today we're going to be looking at the first miracle. Um, and we're going to dig a little bit deeper at the symbolic value and the character. And we start to get a bit of a glimpse of the character and the heart of Jesus through all of this. Um, I'm going to read the whole uh, first from verse 1 to 11 in John chapter 2, which is what I'm going to be focusing on this morning. Um, I hope all of you know, but uh, this is the miracle of uh, the water turning into wine at the wedding. So let's read that. On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana of Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding as well. When the wine ran out, Jesus' mother told him, they, have, they, have, they don't have any wine. What, what has this concern of yours to do with me, woman? Jesus asked, my hour has not yet come. Do whatever he tells you, his mother told the servants. Now six stone water jars had been set there for Jewish purification. Each contained 20 or 30 gallons. Fill the jars with water, Jesus told them. So they filled them to the brim. Then he said to them, now draw some water out and take it to the head waiter. And they did. When the head waiter tasted the water after it had become wine, he did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. He called the groom and told him, everyone sets out the first wine first, uh, the fine wine first. Then after people are drunk, the inferior. But you have kept the fine wine until now. Jesus did this, the first of his signs in Cana of Galilee. He revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. 
So that was the, I mean, if you blink, you missed the miracle. I mean, it, it was that quick if you read it. I mean, I can't remember how many times over the years I've read and I've just blinked through the scripture and I'm, what miracle? Ah, the water turned into wine. Yeah, it's, it's, it's like that because sometimes we skim read. Sometimes we, you know, we don't really get into it. It's just more of an obligation reading the word of God. But there's so much in there that the Holy Spirit can breathe into us. It's amazing. So on the third day after that previous meeting with the disciples, we see in chapter one, uh, there, and in chapter two, we see there's a wedding in Cana, in the town where we later understand that Nathaniel, Nathaniel is actually from. So they all go from Galilee, they travel to the village of Cana, um, which is close to Nazareth, where Jesus grew up, just to give you a bit of a geographical location. These towns are very small places. They're part of Galilee, but these particular villages, is that my phone? Yeah, hopefully not. <laughs> I'll call you back later. No, but it's not mucking around. Um, Nazareth had a population of about 500 people. Crazy, eh? And Cana, which is even smaller, only had a couple of dozen people living in that at the time. Um, everyone knew each other. Everyone knew Jesus. The disciples and Mary, the, mar- the mother of Jesus, they, they were all invited to this wedding. Everybody knew each other. And th- this does suggest that, that the wedding, there might have been a relative of Jesus or a family friend, or a close family friend. Jesus was among close family friends. He was among them at this time when he performed the first miracle. See, scripture doesn't mention why Jesus performed the miracle at a wedding, but in those days, family and honor were a huge importance, and which could have led to, to something to, of why Jesus did that. And these days, marriage is of huge importance, but in society these days, it's just, eh, put a ring on the finger. Eh, try before you buy. Eh, why do I need to get married for? There's not real much value in marriage these days. And in fact, uh, as I was studying, um, there's a lot of research that they say that when marriage is broken down in a society, all kinds of immorality start going. When marriage, when the covenant of marriage is not respected and honored, everything is run, run rampant. There are no boundaries. And uh, 2022, we're going to 2023. We see that. But anyway, I'm going to stop there. We won't keep going on that. And to understand the, the significance of this miracle in particular, we need to understand the cultural importance of, of that wedding at the time. See, weddings at that time were different than they are today. Whether you've been, I'm sure all of us have been at a wedding before, whether it's been traditional, whether it's been an outdoor wedding, more of a modern wedding, Whatever it might have been, the, the, the main focus is to ensure that the bride, especially the bride, and the groom are, are taken care of. They're happy and they have a great day. I mean, <laughs> Peter and Rita are going to get married in a month, so we're hoping that that will happen with you too. <laughs> yeah. Um, and if that happens, and if the bride and groom are happy, then it was a successful wedding. That's what we consider it to be. But in Jesus' time, it was a little bit different. It was an opportunity for the groom, who was the host as well, and his family, the whole family was the host. Um, It was an opportunity for them to demonstrate hospitality, an opportunity for them to put on a celebration for the extended family and the bride and her extended family and all these villagers to, to get together. The groom was responsible for providing a feast large enough to feed those two villagers that came together from the wedding the village of the groom and the village of the bride. 
it was a reflection of how the groom will take care of the bride. It was a reflection of how the groom and the host and that family loved the people around them in the celebration. It was a reflection. It was all about a show. I mean, nothing's really changed in that part. It was all about show and celebration. It was a huge event. It was, it, and it would be shameful in that culture if the proper preparations weren't made. It would be so shameful. And in fact, they, they even say that if, the, if there was a disrespect in terms of that shameful, bad preparation in a wedding, some people had been known to even go to jail for not preparing a proper celebration because it was considered disrespect. Now, the celebrations, these celebrations are underway, as we saw in the scripture, underway. Everyone's having a great time. The two villages are together. Hundreds of people are eating, drinking, having fun. And then we get to John 2, 3. uh, And when the wine ran out, Jesus' mother told him, they don't have any more wine. What? No more wine in a wedding? I mean, that's an unthinkable thing that can happen. The wine runs out of a wedding. That's it's the greatest celebration that these villagers have. I mean, these guys work tirelessly. I mean, back then, the labor was intense. There's no such thing as machinery in farms. It was all done by hand. It was intense in the heat of the day. And I can't imagine in the Middle East. I mean, I, I went on a plane, and I was on my way to, to Portugal, and I stopped at Dubai, and it was 2 o'clock in the morning, and I got out of the plane, and I couldn't breathe. It was 38 degrees at 2 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> I'm like, what is going on here? And then one Australian guy was behind me and said, it's like breathing underwater. There's so much humidity in here, in the the air. And I can't imagine these guys working hard, tirelessly, every single day. So when it came to a celebration, mate, they wanted to celebrate. They wanted to have fun together and really forget about, you know, the hard life that they needed to endure. And wine, it was a symbol of joy. It was a symbol of laughter, a symbol of celebration. Um, you know, the Bible doesn't, the Bible does condemn drunkenness, but the Bible doesn't condemn wine. So a lot of religious people like to think the other way around, but the Bible does not condemn wine. It does condemn drunkenness if you go too crazy, as some people have. (laughs) Um, So the the groom was was responsible for providing a large feast. I mean, uh, for them to have no wine, it was a catastrophe. It was a huge humiliation to not to have enough wine. I mean, and, and I, would, I know personally, growing up in a European home, we always had an abundance of food. I mean, probably not just European, but many different cultures. Always had an abundance of food, always had an abundance of alcohol, and that was just a normal weekday, you know, and it was crazy. But in an event, family and friends, they, they would come together, it, it, it was a whole different level. You got all these Europeans getting together, and I would see these huge feasts being put up. I mean, my mum, for two weeks prior, she'll be on the phone with my aunties talking about lasagna and pasta and all the salad recipes and the cake recipes and what are you going to do and this one's going to do that. And I mean, all, all of this is going on. There's so much going on. The, the serving tables are about three or four serving tables long sometimes even bigger than the, than the guests that were there. And there was just food everywhere. Crazy, an abundance of supply. And I never saw it run out. But that was their pride, that the food never ran out. <laughs> food never ran out, drink never ran out. We've had a great celebration. 
I mean, if, even if it was down to the wire of the food, that would be considered a failure. It had to be in abundance, no matter what. And, uh, and the men, they were, the men would sit back and everyone had their own homemade wine and everyone would be comparing notes and talking about how good their wine was and how they did it and what, what, what day they pressed the wine and how the temperature was and what date they did it and all these things. There was a lot of celebration going on. There was always an expectation of abundance, always. And it was a joy to have an abundance. So for this groom, this groom at this party 2,000 years ago, there was an expectation to provide an abundance. There was an expectation there. No wine would have, in a party would have meant a lack of funds. No wine in a party would have meant a lack of good planning. That, that's, that's bad. The groom was living a nightmare. It was humiliated. It would have shown a lack of disrespect to a family. It would have shown a lack of dishonor, dis, dishonoring to a family. And especially to the, brides, the bride and their family who traveled to the village. There was so much expectation on a host as the groom had to demonstrate his ability to take care of his bride for the rest of his life. That alone, that party alone, will demonstrate to the father that the groom can take care of his bride. Can you imagine that? One event. One event. I mean, I'm sure it's every father's, and unfortunately I'm going to be going through it. My, my daughter's only nine, but it's every father's fear that the person that they're going to marry won't be able to look after him. Is this, is this guy going to take care of my girl? I don't know. I hope so. Or is he just smoking mirrors? And the groom, at that point, he would have looked like smoking mirrors, not providing good wine. <laughs> so Mary, Mary becomes aware of this. Mary would have had some sort of relation in that, some sort of relative or family, good family friend or because of the, the smallness of the, of the town. She became aware of it. And she said, well, th- this could be bad reputation. This can divide. I mean, I mean I'm paraphrasing now because it's not in the Bible. But she could have been thinking, well, the reputation of this family is going to go. Jesus, Jesus, they've run out of wine. And Jesus, up until this point, he hasn't performed any miracles. Mary hasn't seen any miracles happen. She had never even seen Jesus do anything supernatural. But she would have been pretty confident. She would have been pretty confident that if anybody can do something about not having wine in a party, it will be Jesus. And uh, she knew that Jesus could potentially do something about it. Scripture doesn't tell us why uh, Mary came to Jesus, but... I could only imagine in the 30 years that Mary lived with Jesus or Jesus lived with Mary, there are many solutions that Jesus would have provided for his mum. I mean, a wobbly table? Hey, Jesus. A wobbly chair? Jesus. <laughs> a creaky door, maybe? Jesus. Maybe. Maybe. A, you know, a, a broken donkey cart, maybe? Could be. The, Jesus had a solution for everything, I'm sure. I mean, a, a noisy washing machine goes to our days, broken dishwasher, a clogged vacuum. I mean, not 2,000 years ago. Um, Jesus would have had a perfect solution every single time. And Mary knew that Jesus deeply cared for people. Mary knew that Jesus was compassionate. She lived with him for 30 years. She knew that he was kind. And she knew that he loved only in a way that God would love. Mary knew that Jesus was someone special, and he will act. Mary wasn't necessarily asking for a miracle. 
She just knew that Jesus would come up with, with a solution. This time, you couldn't do it with hammer and, nail, and hammer and nails, but he would come up with something. She didn't tell Jesus what to do. She suggested it. She simply presented the problem to Jesus. Mary asked Jesus, a son who could help. And Jesus responded to her in, um, in verse 4. What has this concern of yours to do with me, woman? Jesus asked. My hour has not come. At first, when you read that, woman, it, it looks really disrespectful, very dishonoring. I mean, I would not be caught dead calling my mom woman. Never. I mean, who calls their mom woman? Oh, mate, that, that is very disrespectful. And if I was underage, I know what I'd be, be, be copping. Can of whoop, but. And it looks like that when you're reading that passage. It looks really disrespectful. You know, and the thing is, we're not in that culture. We're not in that language. So when you read it at first, it's like, whoa, Jesus. I mean, that's uh, pretty bad what you did there. It seems a bit, a bit tense, a bit distorted. And, uh, and it's very out of character for Jesus. But that language itself, if you, if you look at that woman part, it's actually meant to be polite. It's meant to be kind. I mean, similar words in English would be like lady or madam. So... I mean, it's softened a little bit more now. So, okay, all right, it makes sense. That's more in character. See, Mary, but Mary, when Mary would have heard that and heard lady or madam coming out of her son's mouth going, why, why did he say that for? She still would have been taken aback from that response. Jesus no longer addresses her as mother. Jesus wanted to, Mary to realize that the life that he lived with her had already ended at that point. His words, why do you involve me? What has this concern to do with me? He gently pointed out to Mary at that point that, he can, that she can no longer give him instructions and tell him what to do and act as, uh, as she had as a past authority over her life. Jesus established a new relationship with Mary, his mother, his mother. It may have been painful as a mother. I mean, especially of Middle Eastern culture for, you know, for Jesus to go, Sorry, you're no longer my mother. I'm walking away. It would have been really painful for a Middle Eastern woman. It would have been very painful because they're very, very attachy, very loving, very, you know. It's like, don't go. You can't go forever. You're my son. Don't leave. Don't leave. Mary could have said that. Mary could have had all these painful fears, fears and painful things going through her mind. And, but it was a transition that Mary knew was coming. She knew that this transition for Jesus was coming because an angel had told her in Luke 135 that the Holy One was to be born through her. He will be called the Son of God. And Jesus, by doing that, he's bringing her up to speed and, and, and showing her and explaining, in a way, explaining to her of what has happened in the last few days. John the Baptist calling him the Lamb of God. His disciples calling him the Messiah, the Son of God, the King of Israel the one the prophets and Moses had talked about. And when Jesus called a woman, Jesus is showing her that you're no longer dealing with the son, but you are now dealing with the son of God. And it was a bit of a transition for her that she needed to accept. He is no longer bound to his mother's business, but now bound to his father's business. Mary had to recognize that Jesus no longer, was no longer the son she raised, but was the promised Messiah, the son of God. And he comes to question, as I was preparing, how do you see Jesus? Do you see him as a good bloke? Do you see him 
as someone you can turn to? How do you see him? Do you see God as the source of light and life itself? Or do you see him as a good righteous man? Do you see him as a good man, a friend with a magic wand? How do we see Jesus will determine our relationship with him? And so Mary, she acknowledges that God is in her midst at that point. He acknowledge, she acknowledges that it's not her son, it's God in the midst. Jesus says to her, my time has not yet come. His words are equivalent to saying, leave the matter to my timing now. It's not, no longer your timing, it's my timing. At the right time, he would act. Leave the matter to the Lord. And sometimes we can get upset ourselves when things don't go according to plan. We call upon the Lord. We call, sometimes we even, even if it's not upon our timing, we get all upset. We go, oh God, what's going on? I need this to move. I need this to change. It's got to be done now. It's got to be done now in my time. We don't say it like that. Oh Lord, in the back of our mind, we're going, man, it better be done now because I'm going to fall over. It better happen. Many times we can give up when we're asking God for help because it doesn't pull through at the right timing. And uh, similar to Mary, she wanted God, she wanted her son to provide a solution right now at that right timing. And many times we can be like that too. We can get caught up. Uh, We can get upset with God if things don't happen at our right timing. And our society has lost that valuable strength called patience. There's There's a strength that we have. It's called patience. And uh, unfortunately, society more and more is losing it. You go to Macca's, you get it in, in a minute. <laughs> you go to KFC, you might get it in two minutes. You go get a kebab, you might get it in five minutes. It's very quick, eh? Very, very quick. We're so used to it. You go to Amazon, you get it the next day sometimes. So many things. You can go to the shop, get whatever you want. You don't have to travel or walk kilometers. You can drive within five minutes and you get to a shop within a few minutes actually sometimes. And the Bible says that faith and patience inherit the promises of God. And the Bible also says, don't get weary of doing good. At the good time, you will be rewarded for your patience as well. So Mary abandons her attempt to ask her son to solve a problem, and she would in the past. And instead of telling Jesus like a son, she engages in faith in Christ and tells the servants, to do and get ready to act. John 2, 5 says, do whatever he tells you, his mother told his servants. Mary had the faith that God will act in a time of need. She, I'm sure she wouldn't have known how it would have happened or when it would have happened, but Mary had faith that it would happen. It doesn't say why Jesus will do this miracle at the wedding, but many, say, many people say that Mary's faith is what activated the miracle. And it's in line with other instances that you would see in the Bible. And the Lord responds, but now it becomes the Father's will to act, not her own will for, the father to, for, for her son to act. The Bible doesn't record Mary getting upset. It doesn't record Mary, Mary pushing Jesus and go, come on, you've got to do something. They're going to get humiliated. Come on, come on, it's got to happen now. And that goes to question, how do we respond to Jesus ourselves? How do we respond to him? Do you try to force his hand? Do you try to, even how do you pray? When you pray, is it a persuasion or are you asking him? It's good to reflect, good to ask. Now John 2, 6, 
he goes, now six, uh, six stone uh, water jars have been set there for Jewish purification. Each contained 20 or 30 gallons. So these jars held 75 to 115 liters of water each. This water was not for drinking. It was definitely not for drinking. These jars were for purification rituals that the Jews followed, a symbol of cleansing themselves. These jars, they had hand washers in there. They had utensils washing in there, plates washing in there. They had all these things being washed in. It would have been really dirty water. And they would have gone meal after meal after meal. And their part of their rituals were, you got to wash your hands before, you got to wash your hands after. And I'm sure back then they didn't have concrete or tile floors. It would have been very dirty. So it would have been quite dirty at that time. There would have been a lot of filth. But Jesus says in John 2, 7, fill the jars with water, Jesus told them. So they filled them to the brim. Why did, why did they fill it to the brim? You know, filling the jars to the brim left no room for any doubt. It's funny how God or the Bible is very specific that filling the jars right to the brim. So at that time, if you filled the jars, or let's say you filled jars with water, at that time, when you drink water, you actually mix it a little bit with alcoholic wine so that you purify the water. So at that time, the question or the doubt would have been, well, he just added a little bit of wine in that water and he just called it wine. But it filled to the brim and God made a, John made it very specific that it went up right to the brim. So these, these jars were filled right to the edge. And John 2.8 says, Then he said to them, Now draw some water out and take it to the headwater. And they did. A Jewish person would never take water out of that purification jar. No way. You're not supposed to take water out for anyone. The water is dirty. And Jesus tells these servants, draw some of the water out. Like, what the... I mean, I love how these servants obey Jesus. I love it. I mean, the way Jesus is going to solve the problem is not, going to, it's not making any sense at all. We've run out of wine... And there's these jars that are dirty. We've been washing our hands all day long. We've been washing utensils. And Jesus goes to the servant, just fill them up with water. And they fill it to the brim. Crazy. Sometimes in our lives, we struggle ourselves. We, we struggle relationally, financially, or whatever it is. And there are things that the Spirit of God speaks to us about to do or say or act. And it doesn't make any sense sometimes. And when Jesus asked his servants to do something that didn't make sense, the problem was solved in a way that only God can solve. The problem was solved that only God could do. See, Jesus in our lives is not asking us to understand what we're going through. He's not even asking us to understand the plans that he has for us. All he is asking is that we are completely obedient and that we trust him. In our culture, we don't like obedience. We think obedience means we're being controlled or we, and we rebel. We rebel against authorities. We rebel against all these things. And we only obey if we know the outcome. But Jesus is asking for complete obedience for us, even if it doesn't make sense. He's asking that we trust his instructions. We trust his word. We trust his spirit. And the challenge in this story is the proof of their faith. The proof that they have faith 
that this water actually turned into wine. And the, they had the proof that they had faith to walk to the head waiter with that dirty little bit of water that could have been. And many times that's what happens in our faith. Our faith gets tested. We take a step out or we're afraid to take a step out. And by many, you can take a step out. And we don't even know what will happen. And that's what faith is all about sometimes. Faith means you've got to believe and trust God and step out, even though it doesn't make sense for you sometimes. And we move forward anyway when we have faith, not knowing the provision that's going to, where it's going to come from, not knowing what God's going to do, but trusting in God, trusting in Him, having faith in our lives. You know, whether it be forgiving someone, whether it be helping somebody, whether it be saying something, writing a note or doing something, giving someone something, whatever it might be, sometimes it might not even make sense, but trusting in God and having faith to step out might even be a new job. Who knows? Whatever it might be for you. See, when we as a church, we stepped out in our food pantry, we didn't know what was going to happen. We had no idea. We just obeyed. I mean, it didn't look like it was God. We just got a phone call. Hey, would you like help? Uh, Would you like to pick up food? And yeah, okay. I didn't know what it was going to look like. We didn't know that we had to use our cars for a year and make a mess out of them. We had no idea. But man, we stepped out in faith and did it anyway. We didn't have the cash flow. We didn't didn't know. We, We just obeyed. And God provided the provision. Now we're flourishing. It's a flourishing ministry built on faith and obedience in Jesus Christ. So the servants obeyed and they brought the water to the head waiter. I'm sure it would have been a real trembling moment. Here you go, sir. Here you go, sir. And, uh, and then we, we see in John 2, uh, 2, 9 to 10. Oh, sorry, 2, 9. When the head waiter tested the water after it had become wine, he didn't know where it came from. Though the servants had drawn the water out, knew. See, this is a miracle. Jesus created a miracle out of nothing. This miracle was full of compassion. It was full of joy. It was full of love. And it describes Jesus' miracle as a whole. The miracle shows that God relates to us. He relates. He cares about us. He understands us. At this wedding, Jesus helps this family he helps the groom get out of a possible, you know, maybe jail time. Who knows? But Jesus did it for them because he loved them. And because he knew, because we know who he is and, and his character. And he's a God of love. He's a God of compassion. And in John 2.10 says, he called the groom and told him. This is the head waiter. He called the groom and told him, everyone sets out the fine wine first. Then after, after the people are drunk, the inferior, but you have left or kept the fine wine until now. This miracle is a symbol or symbolic of what happened between God and man. God the Father left the very best till last. He left the best till last. God the Father left Jesus till last, the very best. He poured out his spirit in abundance. And God gave us his best, the best gift, the gift of mercy, the gift of salvation, eternity, and a relationship with our Heavenly Father. While it may seem insignificant, there's another crucial symbol in the first miracle of Jesus. 
It was not a coincidence that the water Jesus transformed came out of jars for ceremonial washing. The water signified the Jewish system of purification, a sacrificial system, a ceremonial cleansing. They represented, this system represented the way that they related to God. It was very lifeless, a lot of rituals, a lot of ceremonies, just going through the motions. And Jesus replaces this with pure wine. He replaces it with a spotless, it represents the spotless blood of the lamb, representing that new covenant relationship with God through Jesus himself. No longer through religion, coming out of a jar with dead, still, dirty water, dead religion, boring rituals, but through the living water of Jesus Christ. John 2.11 says, Jesus did this, the first of his signs in Cana of Galilee. He revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. Jesus did this. Jesus revealed his glory as God himself, the God of all matter, all matter. Jesus performed his miracles in front of his family, friends, disciples. They were the first ones to witness Jesus as the Messiah, as the creator God. Yet only you see that the disciples believed in Jesus. After all of this, after everything that went on, they would have been talking that Jesus is the Messiah. It was only down the road where Jesus got announced by John the Baptist. I mean, 30 kilometers away, but back then it was nothing for them. Jesus fixed the cart, the donkey cart, so I'm sure it would have gone a long way. There was no human way. There was no human way that this could have possibly happened. Jesus had to be God to create this wine. The evidence is divine. And how strange that signs don't even turn people to Jesus. And when Jesus came back to his hometown, we see many months later, recorded in Luke 4, that the whole family would have seen him coming. The whole family and friends would have seen Jesus in the synagogue. They would have seen it was such a small town. They would have all grown up with Jesus. They would have been all in the same temple as Jesus. And then Jesus comes in and reveals himself as the Messiah. And the family and friends that saw this miracle picked up stones and wanted to murder him. John the Apostle shows that there are many who will choose to follow and many who will choose to reject Christ. Many will refuse to see the way Mary saw Jesus. Many refuse to see that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. See, sometimes we can turn away even after experiencing the powerful salvation. It's a powerful miracle of salvation. Many times we don't want to surrender ourselves to God. We don't want to surrender ourselves to the Lord. We prefer to go on our own selfish lives sometimes, even after we've supposedly given our heart to God. We prefer to live in lust, in the, in the lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh or even in a, in a comfortable religious system. And when any of that gets stirred up, we get angry. We get angry and we get upset. We know the Lord is calling us to greater life, beyond just selfish desires, beyond dead religious works. But it requires a death to self. And that, sometimes, is what the body doesn't like. <laughs> the Bible calls, us, it calls it picking up our cross daily. It requires surrender, trust, obedience to Jesus, the Son of God. And that only happens when we truly believe in our heart that Jesus Christ 
is the Son of God. You see, there comes a choice in our lives. It comes a time when we need to choose. Not choose salvation. Many of us here would be saved. But to choose life. To choose to surrender to Jesus. To choose to surrender our life for his life. We need to choose to know about Jesus. And we've got to choose. Will we choose to just be his friend? Will we choose to consider him a good, righteous man? Will we choose to, to see him as a prophet or a, 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 you know, a really honest man, an integral man that walked the earth and never really experienced that real internal transformation? Or will you choose to surrender your life to Jesus? Like Mary who chose to see Jesus as Christ, the source of all life and light, and like the servants who completely trusted and obeyed in Jesus. God says in Deuteronomy, I have set before you life or death. You choose. You choose. And I pray that every one of us surrender to God. I pray that every one of us trust in God and obey him, whatever that might look like for you. Would you close your eyes right now as we pray and invite the band? Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Father God. Heavenly Father God, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you, Father, that you would reveal Jesus and you have revealed Jesus in what might have looked like a small event in a small town, but it was the first miracle that proved that Jesus is the Christ, the Lamb of God. Father, we choose to believe. We believe that Jesus is God himself. And by believing, we have eternal life, joy, faith, hope, and love. Father, we know there's so many counterfeit sources of life and light out there, but Jesus, we acknowledge you as the only true source of light and life. Holy Spirit, fill our hearts with the light and life of Jesus. Help us to be genuine in our decision to choose life, to choose to be surrendered under you. Holy Spirit, lead us and guide us into this truth. Let it be a truth in our heart, a reality in our hearts. Holy Spirit, fill our hearts with joy and peace beyond understanding because we choose to believe. Let us walk out our days, Lord, in a dark world, broken world, but yet full of joy, full of peace and hope and love because we've chosen to truly and genuinely believe that Jesus is God himself and we can put our trust in you. We can put our hope in you. We can put our faith in you because you are the rock of our salvation. You are the rock of eternal life. And just like that groom who was in trouble, Jesus knew and he was interested in every aspect of our lives. Jesus, what matters to you? What matters to Jesus? 
And Father, help us bring our troubles to you. Help us trust you in every situation. Help us to be obedient to you, even when we don't understand it. Help us to know without a doubt that you care for us. Have your way, Holy Spirit, in us. Reveal Jesus, the true light and the true life. Help us to genuinely follow God, to genuinely grow in our faith, to genuinely love God and to genuinely love people. We thank you, Father. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for Jesus who replaced old rituals, old, still dead water, old life with new life, new creation, with wine representing the blood of the Lamb. We thank you for new life, Jesus.